Good morning. Emma. Good morning. There we go. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, uh, my name is Laura Dunshee. And Habits of the Heart has been going on in this community since I was a young mother, dropping off my firstborn at class, and tomorrow he turns 23. So, my husband Bryce and I have been married for 28 years, and we enjoy our three sons, one in grad school, one in college, one in high school. This Wednesday morning habit has ministered to all five of us, and it's a privilege to open God's word together. I want you to think about this with me. Historians estimate that the entire book of Acts covers a span of roughly about 30 years. And the passage that we're going to zoom in on today covers about 30 hours. It's the Acts 3, as you know, and most of chapter 4. And the layout is clearly chronological, event-driven, and centers on individuals, actions, and intentions. A traditional narrative format. And glancing, if you glance through the passage, just at, at glance, some time-sensitive words really jumped out at me. Like, it starts with, one day, then, while, when, now, indeed, the next day, then, when, so, but, after. Those words give a real sense of life unfolding. Now, the day we're about to see unfold was no ho-hum day for Peter and John. This was not a normal trip to the temple or a typical set of conversations or an everyday prayer meeting. It was none of those things. Let's commit our time to, in, to the Lord in prayer. Please join me. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Lord, we just come before you and we pray that we may be revived and made wiser by studying your word, and that we may leave this place joyful with joyful hearts and enlightened eyes. May the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Two weeks ago, in chapter 12, 2, a crowd was drawn in a rushing wind of the Holy, to the rushing wind of the Holy Spirit as he rested on and filled the believers in Jerusalem. That crowd asked two penetrating, yet really simple questions. What does this mean, and what shall we do? If we simplified our own study methods down to the bare essentials, we could be left with, what does this mean, and what shall we do? 
But before we go crazy with line-by-line -line application, we really need to remind ourselves that Luke is recording a narrative history for us, and there are really fundamental differences between studying and applying a narrative and studying and applying a didactic section or portion of scripture. I came across this uh, explanation that was helpful from Duncan Parlett. He says, keep in mind that the narratives are stories of real people who experienced both mistakes and successes. In other words, sometimes they were good examples to us and sometimes they were bad examples. Here's the main rule of thumb for making application points from narrative sections. Discern where they did well and what timeless, biblical principles they were exercising and where they did not do so well and try to recognize what attitudes contributed to their mistakes and learn from that. To directly apply each sentence of a narrative is to disregard the context and original audience of the scripture being studied. Now, that's what he says, but what makes Acts a little bit more complex is that there are teaching sections embedded in the narrative. And Parlett continues differentiating between narrative and didactic with these words. I love this. It makes me giggle. Didactic is a very superior sort of word that you should use to impress your friends with your profound knowledge of biblical interpretation. Unfortunately, it's just a fancy word for teaching or explaining, he says. So generally speaking, the didactic sections are those parts of the Bible that teach or explain Christian truths. They're commonly found in the letters of Paul, John, Peter, and others, but much of the Gospels, along with the book of Acts, also contain teaching sections. So someone taught me once these three ways to tell the difference. A narrative is a story, didactic, a teaching. A narrative is descriptive, while a didactic portion is prescriptive. A narrative is normal for some, and a didactic is a norm for all. So let's return to those two straightforward questions and get off didactic, because that you have now just uh, totally exhausted my, uh, my ability to speak at that level. So let's go back to straightforward questions. What does this mean and what should we do? <clears throat> As we take a look at the 57 verses in today's lesson, there's a cause and effect pattern that definitely emerges. And I'd like to refer to this pattern of biblical cause and effect as a cycle of revelation, what does this mean, and response, what shall we do? David Cook writes, all other world religions focus on people's efforts, on people's efforts to win and keep God's favor. I'll start again. All other world religions focus on people's efforts to win and keep God's favor. Biblical Christianity alone begins with the proclamation of what God has done, revelation, and only then points out the appropriate human response of repentance and faith. That pattern of revelation and ensuing response happens throughout the entire book of Acts, but it seems really blatant in today's section. So we're going to structure our time around two separate passes through the passage. The first time, we're just going to highlight some of the revelations and responses happening in the lives of the real people 
living the 24 to 30 hours that the text covers. And the second time, we'll highlight two types of witness that are portrayed. Chapter 3, 1 through 10. You can open with me. I've got to turn to it myself. And instead of, in light of time, I'm not going to read all of the passages every time. We'll do a section by section. And chapter 3, 1 through 10, uh, there's a little song that paraphrases this passage. Uh, and it was probably part of your childhood. If it's not, it should be part of your children's childhood because it gets in your mind and can really annoy you. Yes, but it is nearly a, a, a paraphrase. So it says, I'm not singing it, by the way, but you can in your mind hum along. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms and held out his palms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. The song introduces you to Peter, John, a lame man, and a miraculous transformation. So let's remind ourselves what we know about Peter and John, the lame man, and the miraculous sign or wonder. Peter and John, well, these two, they had known each other probably for years before they even met Jesus. They were partners in a fishing business with their brothers, Andrew and James. They sat under Christ's teaching. They traveled with him as part of the 12. Those two prepared the last Passover for Jesus at his request. Those two ran to the empty tomb together where they saw and believed. They broke bread with the risen Christ. They watched as Jesus ascended into heaven, and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The last time we were together, Tana said this during her teaching. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit allows Christ to live his resurrected life in each believer. I had never thought of it that way before. Think of that. Christ living his resurrected life through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in Peter and John, as they came upon the lame man. Now let's look at the lame man. What do we know? This man was crippled from birth. He was over 40 years old. He was dependent on others, even to transport him to his daily location for begging. This was a lifelong condition with no internal solution. From a literary standpoint, the lame man serves as a symbolic illustration of our natural condition, our natural position before God, as sinners in need of salvation. There are about four ways that this symbolism uh, lays out for me, and we'll cover three of them and then come back to the fourth in a few minutes. So how does the lame man illustrate our condition as sinners in need of salvation? First of all, he was born lame. He'd always been this way. He didn't do something and become lame. He was born lame. All of us are born unable to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God. I'll put, give you a reference to look at later on your own time, in your own time, but Romans 5, 12 through 21 outlines every human being's spiritual condition from birth, born 
lame. Secondly, he was poor, completely unable, incapable of providing for himself. All of us are unable to pay the tremendous spiritual debt we owe. There's no way we can provide enough to secure salvation. And that's all right, because that's not how it's intended to be. It's a gift from God, not of works, lest anyone should boast in his own resources. So the poor man had no resources. Born lame, totally poor. And the third, he was located, his position to beg was out just outside the temple at the gate. That's a kind of a picture for me of how our sinful condition without Christ separates us from God. So there the lame man is. One more day down, he's going to be begging. And then verse 3 says, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. This brings us to a revelation on your outline, the revelation of a need. That's the first revelation. Peter and, it's not, it's, there are others, but it's the first one we're going to talk about because we don't have all day, people. Okay, he had a, there was a revelation of a need. Peter and John took the time to respond to this need. The beggar asked for alms, because that's what he thought he needed. But the Holy Spirit allowed Peter to see and meet the larger need. And then there was Peter and John's response to the need. Peter and John recognized their personal inadequacy to meet the need. Silver and gold have I none. Basically, I have nothing of my own to give you. And more than recognizing their personal inadequacy, they relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to meet the need through the name of Jesus. But such as I have, give I thee. Warren Wearsby comments in his study on Acts entitled Be Dynamic. Ordinary people were able to do extraordinary things because the Spirit of God was at work in their lives. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not a luxury. It is an absolute necessity. And this ministry of the Holy Spirit unfolds in this day before our very eyes. The lame man's response to the healing. That healing was a revelation of Christ's ongoing power. The visible evidence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at the facts of this healing. This lame man immediate, was immediately and fully restored physically. He jumped to his feet and instantly walked. No weeks of physical therapy, no cane, no lack of energy or stamina. Immediately and fully restored. Now go back to your list of ways the lame man illustrates mankind as sinners in need of salvation and add this fourth similarity. He received healing, complete, full, immediate. Just as our spiritual condition of guilt is wholly removed, completely healed when we trust in the name of Jesus. And then I love this part of his response, the lame man. He entered the temple courts. Now you guys have to realize that this was probably for the first time in his life. The Old Testament alludes to the fact that physical disabilities barred entrance to the courts. I, I didn't know that. But he definitely spent every day of his life at the temple gate, that near beautiful, begging. This was the first time this man had been able 
to get in maybe at all and definitely to walk. And he didn't, the first thing he did wasn't to run home to his family and go, have you checked? Look at this. Look at this. Yeah, no, he entered the temple courts with Peter and John as witnesses to the powerful name of Jesus. And this restored man, he didn't enter quietly. No, he was walking and leaping and praising God. Now, let's look at the crowd's response to the healing. The final verse of this section depicts their response. And these are, this is a crowd of eyewitnesses to an unbelievable miracle. The revelation that the name of Jesus could immediately heal and fully restore left the crowd with this response. They were filled with wonder and amazement. Peter, as part of this scene, this vignette that we're looking at, he not only sees, but seizes a second opportunity to, opportunity to address a crowd that's filled with wonder and amazement. A crowd that, if they were left to their own astonishment, they might draw flawed conclusions. Remember back in, uh, at Pentecost when they said, oh, they must have had too much wine. You know? So this crowd, left to their own amazement, could draw some flawed uh, conclusions. So what happens? Next section, verses 11 through 26. Peter poses two questions to the crowd. He seizes the opportunity and he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? The NIV says, Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety, our own godliness, we have made him walk? Peter discerned that the crowd would miss the power of the name of Jesus Christ at work in the lame man's transformation, and he saw an opportunity to leave no doubt. So he redirects their attention from the human actions to the source of the miracle. Peter proceeds to boldly reveal truth after truth as he speaks to the onlookers in Solomon's portico. First, he identifies the source of the power to heal. He appeals to their shared heritage, right? Peter's a Jew. Their shared heritage. They're in the temple courts. These people are all there for the same reason. They all believe in the same God. And then he ties it, that belief in that God, to, to Christ. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. He refers to Jesus as God's servant, Jesus, which is directly from the Old Testament, uh, an allusion to Isaiah 53, 11, which is speaking about the coming Christ. My righteous servant will justify many. That's the first of several just allusions and outright references to the Old Testament because Peter knew his audience. He was building a case, and he did with direct references in verses 22, 24, and 25. Then Peter, that, that subtle guy that he was, <clears throat> bluntly sets the record straight. It wasn't by their own power or godliness, but, verse 16, by faith, <clears throat> pardon me, by faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him. And as you can all see. Peter's main concern was to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. 
the servant Jesus was just one of several names that Christ, of Christ that, you, that Peter used during his time to speak to this crowd. And we studied those in our lessons, so I'll, I'll let you look at those in your uh, discussion groups. But Warren Wearsby writes about a name, why this is so important, that a name implies much more than identification. It carries with it authority, reputation, and power. The name of Jesus is the sum total of his attributes. This name, with its authority, is the source of the healing power. The second truth that Peter reveals is a brief outline of their part in history. Hmm, popular. And it's not so much as an accusation, but I see it as a statement of fact. This is what has happened. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him, the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. And then thirdly, after he tells them their part in history, bigger yet, he declares God's part in that same history. You killed, but God raised Christ from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Let's go back to the crippled man, the beggar, the lame man, as exhibit A. We just read verse 16, saying how he was made strong. But listen again, and listen with the ears of the Jews who were hearing. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that he was given this complete healing, as you can all see. So alarms would have been sounding at this teaching. Think about it. To accept the miracle is to admit that Jesus Christ is indeed the living Son of God, resurrected, and that his name still has power. If they're going to accept the miracle, that means what Peter's telling them is that means Christ is alive and well, as powerful as ever. There's not been any diminishing of that power or presence. That's the crux of Peter's speech, Peter's speech his history lesson, his revelation. Christ is living and still powerful. And I'm telling you that that revelation must have been causing their heads to want to explode. Then the fourth truth that Peter moves on to is to extend God's mercy and grace. He says, you acted out of ignorance. Through your ignorant behavior, though, God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets. Peter's tone is filled with an acceptance of God's will. And the final, the fifth truth is that Peter gives a call to response. He says, repent, turn to God, away from your sin, turn to God. And then he gives an if-then to his call to response. I don't know how many of you took geometry, but corollaries, if, then, they, they still haunt me when I hear if-then statements. But this is an if-then statement. And Peter says, if you repent, then your sins are wiped out. There's a time of refreshment. There's a sending of Christ. And then he has the other side. But if there's no repentance, then you're completely cut off from among God's people. The outcome of Peter's call to response is recorded in Acts 4.4. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The Holy Spirit used an undeniable healing to bring about repentance in what must have been hundreds of hearts. And these hearts turning 
repenting and turning to God through faith in Jesus Christ, they caused quite a stir. And chapter 4 opens with a group of leaders, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees approaching Peter. Verse 1 records that group of leaders' emotional response to Peter and John, and, and really to Peter and John's message, teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And depending on what translation you read, this, this is the words that are used to describe their emotional state of being. They were greatly disturbed, annoyed, grieved, thoroughly incensed. No repentant heart, hearts in this group. Chapter 4 outlines how the council's frame of mind translated into their outward behavior and their response to Peter and John, and really to Peter and John's message. There's a stark contrast for me as I looked through this between Peter and John's dependence on the Holy Spirit and the council's dependence on their own resources. Let's look at the council's first response. It's quick and easy. They're going to jail Peter and John for the night to suspend the teaching efforts. Oh, this looks human. Take control of the situation. We'll put an end to it. Put them in. They can't talk while they're in there. Nothing's going to happen while they're in there. Yeah, they're going to control it themselves. And then the council's second response gets even more human and, and attractive. They brought Peter and John to be questioned before the rulers, elders, teachers of the law, and they brought along also the ruling high priest, the senior ex-high priest, and other men in the high priest's family. Quite a display of human intimidation tactics. Bring in all the big wigs and flex your authority. And they ask, by what power or what name do you do this? Now I got a little aside here. Because every time I read that, I think, there is no way these men didn't know the answer to that question. I mean, they didn't have, uh, you know, social media, but they had had overnight to search this out. I'm pretty sure they knew the answer to that question, but maybe they were giving Peter and John a chance to rethink it as they flexed their authority. After a night in prison, maybe they'll, you know, soften this down a little bit. But here's the truth that's revealed. In the face of great peer pressure, Peter responds, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and everyone else in Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you completely healed. He is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Jesus, that is. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must, we must be saved. Wow. That's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Full disclosure of the gospel in three sentences. The combination of two courageous, unschooled, ordinary men indwelt by the Holy Spirit coupled with the physical presence of the healed cripple, left the council with nothing to say and led them to their third response. They decided to have a private confab, a conference. To confer means to talk in order to compare opinions and make a decision. Ah, 
another human response. They're going to depend on the wisdom of each other, their wisdom in their own eyes, and they're going to come up with a solution. One commentator wrote, they were not seeking the truth, but a way to avoid the truth. So they got in this little conference, in the bio, and Luke so kindly records some of their conversation. What are we going to do with these men? Everybody in Jerusalem knows about this outstanding miracle. we got to stop this thing before it spreads any further. So they come up with a plan of action, and that's the fourth response. They called a second session, and they delivered an ultimatum. In, they, they exerted their own human authority. They gave this command. Do not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Simple. Peter and John's response, though, wow, thought-provoking. It reveals the condition of their hearts. If I'm in front of a group of authoritative people flexing their muscles who've already put me in prison for the night and can do more if they'd like, they certainly did to Christ. I don't know what I respond to that, but Peter spoke the condition of his heart, and for John as well. It says they said, so I don't know whether they said it in tandem, or they said, yeah, what he said, or if they said it over again, or I agree, or, or gave ditto marks behind the back, but Peter and John's response is recorded. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Verse 21 goes ahead to say, After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them. Why? Why couldn't they decide how to punish them? They'd been really creative so far. No, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. I had never really thought about the fact that the crowd's response was ongoing. I mean, the evidence of the power of Christ's name was compelling. And in fact, it was not just standing, but walking and leaping in front of them. Clear proof that faith in the name of Jesus brings healing and salvation is found in no one else. So, we've come through about 24 hours with Peter and John. And now I'm going to read Acts 4, 23 through 31. You can follow along. So that I don't stumble, I'm reading it in the NIV. Most of you probably have ESV, so you can just note the differences and not have me be tongue-tied. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I'll stop there. So Peter and John came back and they gave a report 
of all that had occurred and the responses of the believers was to raise their voices together in prayer. The depth and richness of their prayer stimulates me to adopt their manner of coming before the Lord. These believers began their prayer by reminding themselves of who God is. That's what they did. They reminded themselves of who God is, what he's already done and accomplished. How did they do that? They addressed God as sovereign Lord. Who is God? He's the supreme ruler. Our glossary says the controller of the affairs of nature and history. In reference to Acts 4, 24 through 31, Paul Ennis, in the Moody Handbook of Theology, writes that amid persecution, the apostles encouraged themselves in the sovereignty of God. They comforted themselves by reminding themselves that God was in control of all the affairs of nature and history. Then they acknowledged God as creator. I mean, if God created everything, doesn't it stand to reason that he rules over it? By acknowledging the truth of who God is, they acknowledge his capabilities to handle their current situation. And then they revisit the truth in another way, by reciting an Old Testament passage, a psalm of David, Psalm 2. This, the truth in that psalm had to be really magnified to them, given their own experience of those past 24 hours. Think about it. Why do the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one? They're seeing this still going on. The believers used scripture to confirm this truth. What happens is always within God's control. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. If God was in control then, those when, when they put Christ to death, then he's definitely in control in their current situation, in the believer's situation that this prayer is from. The second thing the believers did in their prayer is remind themselves of their need of God's power, their need for God's power and God's will in their life. And they did this with presenting requests. Three verbs were used. The first one was consider their threats. Now this one seemed kind of funny to me at first. You're talking to the sovereign God you've just, who created you and everything in the world. And you're, you're saying, now consider their threats. Or were they talking to themselves? Or were they just considering their threats? But if I had been praying, then I would have said, now con considering their threats, let's work on um, changing my circumstances. Uh, Lord, could you protect me? If you're not going to change the circumstances, then protect me. They didn't ask for either one of those things. I'm not saying they didn't in their hearts or it would have been wrong for them to. It wouldn't have been wrong. But they just said, consider their threats and enable. Enable your servants. That's what they were asking for. They wanted enable. They wanted to be enabled to speak God's word with great boldness. They knew that that capability could only come if they depended on God's enabling work. So by asking that, they actually acknowledged the source of power and they acknowledged their positions as servants under God's authority. They needed something from him. And the third thing they asked was to stretch out your hand to heal and to perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
using the same word that was used in verse 18. And some of these people weren't even there then. They knew this holy servant Jesus. They knew him from their childhood. And they were praying that healing and miraculous signs and wonders would continue. Why? Because they'd just seen the domino effect of the last 24 to 30 hours of what that healing did. It, it provided opportunities to share the gospel in powerful ways. That's why they were asking, not to draw attention to themselves, so that they could then use it as a platform to boldly speak. Verse 31 reads, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That verse illustrates the relationship between filling and service. It was the filling of the Spirit that enabled the believers to speak the word of God with boldness. This answered prayer in verse 31 leaves me wondering what speaking the word of God with boldness could look like in each one of our lives. Before we close our time, I'm going to pass quickly through the passage a second time. Now we're familiar with the events and action of this 24-plus hour period of history. So with hindsight, let's look at it and make some observations about two examples of being a witness. In the first section of the text, we see Peter and John witnessed by their action in the ten, first 10 verses. Peter and John identified a need and they meet it through the power of the Holy Spirit in Christ's name. What does that look like for us? We have the same thing Peter had, such as I have. We have the limitless power of Christ living in us. Our actions, our deeds, should flow out of a motivation to demonstrate resources that exceed our own limitations. And in that demonstration, point to Christ. What are you doing that isn't possible without Christ's work in you? Don't think of high and mighty deeds. Just start at the end of yourself and continue in the power of Christ. Peter knew the extent of his personal resources. None. Silver and gold have I none. Fill in the blank, I have none. <clears throat> but more importantly, he knew intimately the such as I have. That was the resource that could minister to the lame man. Peter reached out and took the beggar by the right hand and helped him up. The scripture says, you know how you bend over and hand out, put out your hand and help someone off the ground? That's the visual that came to mind. The beggar didn't struggle up, and Peter didn't almost get pulled to the ground. No. Verse 8 says, the lame man jumped to his feet. I get this visual image of pulling up a child much lighter than I am. They almost sail past you. That's ministering help to another in the power of Christ. That's relying on such as you have as a believer to ultimately bring glory to Christ. The second witness, we had the witness by their actions. Now they witness by their words. They witness in truth. And there are two groups to whom they witness. 
First, Peter and John witness in word to unbelievers, the onlookers, the council. We saw all that. So our deeds, witnessing in action, must be paired with an added measure of willingness to get over ourselves and speak the name of Christ. Speaking his name and his word with boldness, and by boldness I mean fearless before danger, assured, confident, standing out prominently. Speaking his name with boldness does not mean speaking rudely. We're tasked with speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. While preparing, I found this quote, and it, it said that Peter's speech is an example of the fact that true witness involves the bad news of sin and guilt as well as the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. There can be no true faith in Christ without first repentance from sin. Yesterday in the leaders' meeting, I don't normally have the privilege of attending, we were they were talking about John 3, in our lesson, John 3, 16, 17, and 18, and how much of the world stops with the good news for, you know, for God so loved the world, that part. But 17 gets better, and 18 gets pointed Where do you stop? In part or in whole? There's a time for part. There's a time for whole. And that's what the Holy Spirit's for. Peter's unbelieving audience is much the same as our modern experience with unbelievers. There's a current song playing on Christian radio that, and the authors of the song explain the genesis of it in these words. We face a culture that tries everything possible to make Jesus seem irrelevant, as if he is nothing more than a fairy tale or at least a legend of the past. But those of us who know Christ know he is not just simple religion, but the living God who not only was, but is, and is to come. He lives inside us and has changed us completely with his love, and nothing can change that. And some of the lyrics of the song that they're speaking about say, some people say he was a healer, who had his moment long ago. Some even say his time is over. Peter's audience was hoping that. Those leaders were hoping Jesus' time was over. The song goes on to say, some might say that Jesus was. I say that Jesus is. How do our words in everyday conversations declare that truth? Some might say that Jesus was. I say that Jesus is. Secondly, the, G, Peter and John, not, not, they didn't just witness in word to unbelievers. They witnessed in word to believers, to their fellow believers. The verse says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Had you ever considered that Peter and John were witnesses to their own people? I hadn't. I hadn't ever thought about that. The Bible devotes much time to instructing believers how to function with one another. This passage illustrates encouraging one another. We normally think of encouraging one another as kind words that serve to inspire with courage or spirit or hope. But encourage can also mean to spur on, stimulate, foster. 
So by relaying the activity of the Lord in your life, as Peter and John did, you can stimulate others to love and good deeds. Only when we have heard what God has done can we rightly consider what we should do. Verse 2 of the song I just referenced says, He's not some savior at a distance. He's not some God so far away. I can tell you I have seen the evidence here in the present tense. Some might say that Jesus was. I say that Jesus is. Peter and John coming back and reporting. The report given to those fellow believers encouraged them, spurred them on to do what? Pray for one another. Acts 4.24, when they heard this, all about what man's response to what God had done, what the council had done, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. God answered in a mighty way. These 57 verses have enough content to sustain our faith or give us a headache today. I'm not sure which I've done for you, but they give us enough to sustain our faith. I mean, the passage covers all three persons of the Trinity, as well as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It connects the gospel message to the Old Testament covenant. It clearly conveys both the need for repentance and the source of salvation. Faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And it characterizes the lives of empowered witnesses. So, as empowered witnesses, our words to fellow believers, our words to unbelievers, and our actions in either setting should declare the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Our lives will come Our lives will come and go as one day, then, while, now, indeed, the next day, then, when, so, but, after. This was no ho-hum day for Peter and John. This was not a normal trip to the temple or a typical set of conversations or an everyday prayer meeting. But, perhaps, identifying and meeting needs through the ministry of the, of the Spirit as they did during their trip to the temple, and sharing the message of salvation through faith in Christ as they did with the onlookers and the council, and turning to the triune God for the power to do His will as they modeled in their prayer, perhaps, those three things should provide the very definition of a normal, typical, everyday type of routine. Peter and John just went to pray. They allowed the Spirit of Christ living in them to unfold their day. You close with me in prayer. Oh Lord, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, empower us to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By him we pray and by him we rejoice.